Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network. NBN listeners like to read books and buy them. So we thought we'd tell you that right now, our friends at Princeton University Press are having a remarkable site-wide sale. You can get 50% off books, including ebooks and audiobooks, with the code 50, F-I-F-T-Y, at checkout until May 31. You can save some real money on Princeton University Press books. I encourage you to go there and check it out. Со двора подъезд известный под названием Черный ход В том подъезде, как в поместье, проживает черный кот Он в усы усмешк прячет темнота ему, как щит Все коты поют и плачут Hello everybody, welcome to another edition of New Books in Russian and Eurasian Studies, part of the New Books Network. I'm your host, Sean Guillory. Every podcast, I talk to an author about their new book on Russia or Eurasia. In this episode... I spoke with Charles King about his book, Odessa, Genius and Death in the City of Dreams. Look up the street or down the street, this way or that way, we only saw America, wrote Mark Twain to capture his visit to Odessa in 1867. In a way, it's not too far-fetched that Twain saw his homeland in the Black Sea port. Odessa was very much a modern city with its right-angled streets, buzzing markets, and cultural bricolage. What Twain saw in the streets and courtyards of Odessa, writes Charles King in his Odessa, Genius and Death in the City of Dreams, was a place that had cultivated, like his homeland, a remarkable ability to unite nationalities and reshape itself on its own terms generation after generation. However, what Twain failed to see, King continues, was the city's tendency to tip with deadly regularity over the precipice of self-destruction. Odessa has always been a city of in-betweens, a Russian imperial outpost as it gestured to the north, and a window to the Middle East as it pointed south, a Russian city that is closer to Vienna and Athens than Moscow and St. Petersburg, a city that is in Russia, but not of it. King chronicles Odessa's contradictory attributes and their impact on its identity. He asks how Odessa survived, as a city of enlightenment and holocaust, high culture and revolutionary violence, multiculturalism and ethnic hatred, a bastion of freedom and victim of military occupation. In all, King concludes, that Odessa is one of those cities where perpetually teetering between genius and devastation may be the normal state of affairs. I give you my interview with Charles. Hi, Charles. Hi, how are you, Sean? Uh, welcome to New Books in Russian Eurasian Studies. Uh, thanks for taking the time to talk about your new book, Odessa, Genius and Death in the City of Dreams. Thanks very much. Happy to be with you. Great. Well, just to begin the interview, why don't you uh, tell us a bit about yourself? Well, I'm a, a professor of international affairs at Georgetown University in, in Washington. Uh, I tend to write books that uh, have the word history somewhere in their title, even though I I also tend to write articles that have the word politics or political science somewhere in their title. So um, one of my, my graduate students joked that I, I seem to be a political scientist at the 10,000-word at the level and a historian at the 100,000-word level. Uh-huh. <laughs> but, but I'll take that as a, as a compliment to both disciplines, I guess. Mm-hmm. Um, it's actually interesting that you have this, shall I say, split personality, because when I think of political scientists, I, I don't usually think of good writers, but you are one of the better writers I've come across, um, and it really comes out in this book. 
Well, th thanks very much. I mean, yeah, I think it, political science training or maybe social science training in general is sort of meant to beat the literary wings off of you. At, at some point, you get uh, get your wings clipped. Um, and uh, even though I think the best of political science, you know, strives for a kind of uh, clarity in, in what it does, um, I've, I've enjoyed the process of trying to, to write a kind of history that's informed by big social science questions. Uh, I mean, I'm really not a, not a sort of trained historian in the sense that I tend not to write within the kinds of debates that, um, that I think professional historians take, take particularly seriously. I, I tend to write books that, uh, that I hope contribute uh, to, to social science debates as well as uh, you know, area studies or, or the histories of particular pieces of real estate ar around the world. But I really am motivated by, by big social science questions. Well, your your actual writing style is is really good. <laughs> this well, is well. Thank thank you thank you very much. I also like to read good writing, mm -hmm. you know, and um, and I really respect uh, both academics and non academics who are who are able to uh, to sort of draw the reader in through character or the arc of a narrative or whatever. And I and I I actually try to try to instill that in my students as well when I can. Well, you certainly do a good job at it. Um, so, how did you come to write about a, a book about Odessa? Well, I had I had written several books. In fact, all of all of my books, I guess, up to this point, with the exception of one, um, have been about the countries uh, on or around the Black Sea. And and I have a I have a kind of history, I guess, in my own career of writing subjects, writing books about subjects subjects that people say don't exist. I mean, my my first book was about a country called Moldova, which um, exists, I guess, by, by, by a kind of accident of history. It happened to emerge out of the Soviet Union when the Soviet Union broke up in, in 1991 and, and became an independent country really by accident, largely because it had been one of the 15 Union republics of the Soviet Union. But the history book I wrote about that country was about how, uh, despite this accident, you got a rather strong sense of being Moldovan in a kind of national sense. And I was curious about where that came from. Um, I wrote a book about the entire Black Sea, uh, which a lot of people said didn't exist. That is to say, not that the sea didn't exist, but that the sea as an object of historical research uh, uh, did, didn't exist, that it was too divided among the cultures and peoples and uh, separate histories around it. And then I wrote a history of the Caucasus, which again, people often say doesn't exist as a single unified space. And, and in each of those projects, what I wanted to do was to use a, a, a different uh, feature of the physical landscape, uh, a sea, the mountains, as a, as a kind of lever against the dominant way of telling history uh, in, in Eastern, Eastern Europe and Eurasia. That is through a kind of national lens, as if the only things that have a history are our nations uh, in, in defined in a kind of ethnocultural sense, and then with with Odessa, I thought I hadn't written a book about a about a city. Uh, Odessa is to me, to my mind, the most interesting uh, city on and a, a, around the Black Sea, with the, with the exception of Istanbul, which isn't on physically on the sea itself. Um, and as as I read more and more and traveled more and more to Odessa, I became fascinated by how this city seem to be two things at once, both this cosmopolitan, multicultural, legendary kind of space that produces its own kind of urban patriotism uh, on the one hand, and on the other hand, a place that over the course of the 20th century was one of the most violent places uh, in Eastern Europe, and in particular uh, during the Second World War, ended up destroying the community that had, had been its most vibrant, and that's its, its very large Jewish community. 
Mm -hmm. Well, those are definitely some of the issues we're going to talk about today. Um, and, and, and to that, the Odessa as a re representation of the region, you do open the book by placing the city in the larger context of the Black Sea region. Um, why don't you talk a bit about how Odessa represents the Black Sea world? Well, in some ways, I mean, on, on, on its surface, it represents it very well. That is to say, the whole Black Sea world is a place where, to use all the cliches, uh, you know, it's a meeting place of civilizations. It was a traditional crossroads of, of trade and, and culture uh, of both peace and, and of warfare. Um, but in, in, in perhaps deeper and more interesting ways, Odessa is kind of um, a city that was raised up out of nothingness and in some ways doesn't represent the long history of the Black Sea world. Um, many of the other cities around the sea, uh, Istanbul, uh, Sevastopol, uh, Batumi, uh, have kind of Greek foundations. That is, they were uh, built on top of um, ancient Greek cities or, or trading posts or entrepots that uh, existed from the 5th century BC forward. And, and you dig down beneath the, um, the, the asphalt of these places, and you find um, ancient Greek ruins, and on top of that, um, you know, ancient ruins from the Middle Ages, from the Italian trading centers that were established around the, around the sea in the 12 and 1300s. But in Odessa, there really is, is none of that. Um, the ancient sources, none of them, uh, give an unambiguous account of the place that would later become uh, Odessa. It really was an 18th century Enlightenment project placed down um, on at the meeting place of sea and step and built up as a kind of southern St. Petersburg, raised up out of nothing. And, it, and in fact, it's, it's, it, it's, it's histor the, the historical disconnect between the, the, the city and the longer history of the Black Sea I also find particularly interesting. Mm -hmm. Well, since uh, it, it, it sits on wrong with Black Sea, and, and I think the Black Sea certainly gives it its character just because of its multi-ethnicity, but as you said, it also is a, is a city of enlightenment, and therefore, it looks to uh, Russia. Um, and and in, throughout the book, you do refer to it as New Russia. And so how does Odessa represent that? Yeah, well, it, it, the project of establishing, uh, of establishing Odessa was a, was a project that came to fruition uh, under Catherine the Great. This was meant to be her version of St. Petersburg, a southern St. Petersburg. St. Petersburg had been the great project of Peter the Great looking out to Europe Odessa was going to be the great southern project of Catherine the Great looking out to what we now call the Middle East, to the Ottoman Empire, to the wider uh, Muslim world. It would showcase the benefits and achievements of Russian civilization for the benighted lands um, around the Black Sea, either Christian or, or Muslim. And so if you go to Odessa today, to the old city center, you find a city that, that inscribes on the landscape all of these Enlightenment ideals. The streets intersect at right angles. Uh, you see the, the influence of you know, classical Greek architecture in, in many of the buildings. Um, it, was, it was meant to showcase, the, again, the achievements and the possibilities of civilization within a Russian context. And today, there is a, a statue of Catherine the Great not far from the Odessa port with her left hand pointing to the port, but also pointing to the north, that is, to Russia itself. So Odessa has long been this kind of outpost of Russian civilization, uh, far removed from the other centers of Russian civilization. After all, Odessa is you know, closer to, to Athens and to, uh, to Vienna, and certainly to Istanbul, than it is to, uh, to St. Petersburg or, or Moscow, um, a, a city that has been very much on the edge and, and therefore meant to be a kind of 
ambassadress, if you like, of uh, of Russian culture to the wider world. Hmm. You know, one of the ironies, of course, of that it being an ambassador to the, the wider world is the fact that the city's uh, the two most important people for the city's establishment are two foreigners, uh, Jose de Ribas and Armand de Richelieu. Uh, they yeah. were they were instrumental in the city's development. Uh, talk a bit about these two figures and how they put their own particular stamp on Odessa. That's right. I mean, it it it, it is uh, somehow fitting, I guess, that the the, the two great the, the great founder and then the great early builder of the city uh, should be people who had kind of ambiguous relationships to their to their own past and to their own identity. Were uncomfortable in a in a in, in a sense with being themselves, just like Odessa has has been over the course of its history. Jose de Ribas was uh, a Neapolitan uh, mercenary in Catherine the Great's uh, military service, served with distinction in the 1780s uh, on the Black Sea front in, the, in Catherine's war against uh, the Ottomans, and then managed to convince the empress and some of the key decision makers in her court, including uh, her lover and the effective co-ruler of the empire at the time, Grigory Potemkin, uh, that she really needed a new port um, in the south, a port that would be ice-free um, uh, most years, uh, that could be the great trading center of these new lands that had been opened up with the conquest of Ottoman territories on the north coast of the Black Sea in the 1780s. And Odessa became became that port. And Deribas uh, was really the closest thing the city had to a founding father and in some ways uh, put his stamp on the city. He never lived to see the real takeoff in the city by the 1810s and 1820s uh, as the grain trade picked up and Odessa really did become the most important commercial seaport uh, in, in the Russian Empire. But that, that sense of uh, having a fundamental connection to the Mediterranean world uh, having that combination of civilization and uh, and and underground criminality that that we know so well from the history of Naples itself, Jose de Ribas's uh, hometown, all of that has implanted itself in a way in uh, within within Odessa. And then this other character, Armand de Richelieu, um, who was related, uh, was part of the same family as the great Cardinal Richelieu uh, in French history. Uh, he was a French nobleman on the lamb who, like de Rivas himself, uh, found a, um, a, a place within uh, the court of, uh, of, of Catherine the Great and uh, later on in, uh, other uh, uh, czars and emperors of the, of the Russian Empire. Um, and became one of the early uh, governors of this whole stretch of territory called called New Russia. Uh, just as there was a New France and a New England and a New Spain, Russia itself also had its its own colonial possession. That the difference being that unlike New England, uh, New Russia butted right up against uh, Old Russia. Uh, and he became the governor of these southern territories and and was uh, one of the characters who really helped to build uh, the city of uh, of, of uh, Odessa, taking the handoff from uh, from Deribus and the other first generation founders of the city. Well, Richelieu's real test, though, came in 1812 when an epidemic of bubonic plague swept through the city. Um, and your account of, of the way he administered the quarantine of of the city is is quite interesting. Talk about how how Richelieu handled the plague and the innovations he made. Well, disease had always been an issue um, around the Black Sea. In fact, from the Middle Ages forward, and there's uh, some belief that uh, that the Black Death of uh, of the Middle Ages, in fact, originated around the Black Sea, or at least made the jump from Eurasia to the heart of Europe uh, from ships that uh, that returned from the Black Sea ports to the Mediterranean. So, 
infectious diseases had been a, a perennial problem uh, around this body of water. And uh, within this uh, new growing city, um, infectious disease also became, became an issue as well. And in 1812 and 1813, when the city has a major um, outbreak of, of the plague, the solution, really the only solution, uh, turns out to be twofold. One, to enforce a very, very strict quarantine on people coming into and going out of the city, but also moving around the, the, the small but growing city itself. And then secondly, in the end, uh, to, uh, to burn the docklands, that is to prevent new ships from coming in, uh, but also to destroy the bundles of cloth or cotton or other goods in which uh, the carriers of this disease uh, could flourish. Even though at the time, Russians and others didn't have a clear sense on what the, the major uh, causes of plague were. They did have some sense of what the, the vectors uh, were, particularly rats and, uh, and fleas. Uh, and the idea was that in burning the docklands, you would actually uh, remove or break this link uh, between the sea and the city that had caused so much destruction in the, in, in the months before. And so you have this really incredible and in many ways heartbreaking scene of the docklands that Derebus had envisaged and that, uh, that Richelieu had built suddenly going up in flames and going up in flames precisely because of the city's connection to the, to the wider world. The very thing that Catherine herself had envisioned for the city turns out to be one of the, um, the, the city's uh, great negative points uh, by, by 1812-13. And there is also the other interesting thing that you point out, too, is that in, in terms of the quarantine, unlike, say, practices in Europe, Richelieu um, applied this with a measure of egalitarianism. That's, that's right. I mean, in, in plenty of other cases of the outbreak of plague from the, from the Middle Ages forward, it was often the Jews who were blamed uh, for it in some metaphysical way, thought to be harbingers of, carriers of, of this disease. And in Richelieu's case, um, he did understand that the plague was something that didn't come from a particular religious or, or ethnic community. It was something that was affecting the city uh, overall. And, uh, and, and you're right, there was this kind of egalitarianism with which the quarantine was, uh, was imposed. And in a way, that sort of set the stage, I think, for the growth of the city later on in the 19th century, that, that uh, regardless of one's um, ethnic, religious, cultural, linguistic origins or proclivities, um, people could find a home uh, in Odessa. There was never, for example, anything like a Jewish ghetto uh, in the city. There was never a Jewish neighborhood. In fact, until the 1940s, when one was created for Jews by the occupying power in the, uh, in the city during the Second World War, um, people uh, came to Odessa because they could find economic success. And in fact, it was wealth and success that were the arbiters of, of privilege, the arbiters of, of determinants of where you lived in the city, not something like ethnicity or language. And, and that, I think, was, was the foundation for the, the famous multi-ethnicity or cosmopolitanism that the city really became known for as the century progressed. Mm -hmm. Well, at one point, to this effect too, at one point you mentioned that Odessa had a reputation of being in Russia but not of it, which I thought was a very interesting idea um, because it really does straddle both worlds. And um, you, you already have mentioned the, the, the economic reasons why people would come, but what types of people were attracted to Odessa for, because it kind of straddled both Russia, being part of Russia, but not of it? 
it, it was very much on the sort of physical edge of the empire, but but also on the kind of metaphysical uh, edge of, of the empire. Until well into the 19th century, street signs in Odessa were in Italian and then in Italian and, and Russian. And that's sort of hard to get our heads around. That, you know, how does this Russian imperial city have Italian street signs? But for the first couple of decades of the 19th century, Italian or a version of Italian really was the lingua franca of, of commerce in the city. You had so many... Um, traders coming from uh, from the Adriatic, from the Aegean Islands, uh, using Italian uh, much as they had used it in the Middle Ages as a way of kind of uh, getting around the sea and now doing business in the most important port on on the sea. Um, it also began to attract by the 1830s uh, Jews, uh, particularly Jews from farther north in the region of Galicia, um, who found in this burgeoning seaport a place where they could remake themselves where they were not burdened by um, the traditions of uh, Jewish religion and culture and learning. Uh, and I use that term burdened purposefully because uh, Odessa didn't have a great tradition of, uh, of, of Jewish thought and, and Jewish culture, unlike, say, a Warsaw or, a, or what is today, Vilnius or Vilna. Um, but that lack of a, of a tradition, in a way, meant that people could come to the city, Jews in particular could come to the city, and reinvent themselves. It was a city that was within the pale of settlement within the Russian Empire, that is, that the territory to which Jews were technically restricted in terms of their, their, their living arrangements, where Jews were, were forced to live and make their careers. But within the pale of settlement, it was unquestionably the most open, the most liberal, um, and the most expansive uh, city around. So sort of regardless of one's uh, religious, ethnic, cultural background, this is a city where you could be something that you couldn't be um, in your hometown, hometown, and that applied to Jews as well. Now, would you go so far as to say that there was a, uh, because despite all of these different ethnic groups, um, a, an identity of being Odessian uh, sprouted up? Because, and, and this goes to one of your chapters, which you which I, the title is interesting in and of itself, it's There is No National in Odessa. Um, does a city identity uh, take precedent over its, the various, various ethnic groups, ethnic identities? Well, I think, I think it does. I mean, I think being from, Odessan, from Odessa and being Odessan over the course of the 19th century does begin to develop. To me, I think this is much more a product of the 20th century, particularly even of the post-1945 period, and we can, I'm, I'm sure, talk about that in, in a bit. But yes, I would say even over the, the, the 19th century, this be begins to develop a sense of pride in the city, a pride in the achievements of the city, um, and whether it was the, the, the plague phenomenon and the destructiveness of that in 1812-13, or whether it's the bombardment of the city by the British during the Crimean War, there are a series of sort of punctuated episodes of violence that... Um, that does begin to that do begin to create, I think, um, a, a sense of Odessa ness. Now, that doesn't mean, by any means, that the, the city is uh, is uh, always peaceful and that people manage to get along. In fact, as the 19th century progresses, it becomes one of the more violent places in the Russian Empire, and by 1905, perhaps the most violent place, um, uh, w w at least for a few months with, within the empire. But that, again, is one of the contradictions of this city, that you can have multiculturalism, co a cosmopolitan identity, a sense of urban patriotism on the one hand, uh, without creating real social order and, uh, and perpetual peace on the other. 
Mm -hmm. Well, we'll come back to the issue of violence um, and, and ethnic violence in particular in a bit. Uh, but first, I want to turn to one of its most uh, prominent member uh, residents, uh, a certain Alexander Pushkin. Uh, who lived in, in exile in Odessa in 1823. Um, what was um, Pushkin's creative and personal life like in Odessa? Well, Pushkin was exiled to the city. It was a form of internal um, exile as punishment for writing verses that were thought to be um, uh, uh, that were thought to insult uh, various members of the of uh, the Tsar's inner court, uh, perhaps even being uh, flirting with the idea of revolution, uh, certainly with the idea of liberalism. Um, and uh, he, he was exiled to the uh, far corner of the empire, which gives us some sense of how Odessa was still perceived by people in St. Petersburg uh, in, in the 1820s as really being uh, a city on the wild frontier. Um, and he spends um, a very short period of time there, just a little more than a year, um, but during that period, uh, he certainly leaves his mark on the city, and Odessans today are very proud of their connection with Pushkin. But the city, I think, also marks him, because in the period that he's there, he falls in love um, ill-advisedly with, uh, with the wife of the local governor general. Um, the governor general's name was Mikhail Baransov, or Count Baransov. Uh, he falls in love with, uh, with uh, the gentleman's uh, wife, Lise Varansova who is uh, a rather famous beauty and hostess uh, of her day. And it's that love affair in 1823-24 that, uh, that many scholars believe uh, sparks some of the ideas that will eventually lead to his great novel in verse, uh, Yevgeny Onyegin. Uh, in fact, there is, a, a, there is a, even a, a kind of resemblance between the narrative arc in Yevgeny Onyegin and Pushkin's own life in the city because the character of Tatyana Larina in Onyegin is, of course, a, uh, a woman who chooses uh, the love of her husband over the prospect of passion with an old flame. And in fact, that's exactly what happens to Pushkin and Lise Voronsova. Lise, of course, uh, as would have been fitting at the time, stays uh, with her husband, despite her affair uh, with Pushkin, and Pushkin himself is event eventually exiled on uh, from Odessa to probably the worst exile of his life, that is being sent back to his mother's farm, uh, where he can be watched uh, more closely from uh, from, from St. Petersburg. Uh, but the city really did, I think, have, have an impact on, on his artistic life, and in turn it gave the city one of its more famous personages that it could then claim as as a native son even though of course pushkin wasn't wasn't born there and spent a very short period of time there right right yeah you you tell a, a quite a good tale of of how scandal follows pushkin <laughs> and, that's, that's right that's right it, it, it did sort of trail after him but it, one has to say that he he really in, invited it oh uh, certainly <laughs> It, after I I, I, re I read this part, um, it it reminded me why it's no surprise that he died uh, at the hand of a duel. <laughs> yes, yes, exactly, exactly right. I mean, he he died a good death in the sense that that's the that's the way you would expect him to go. Um, you know, amazingly though, he died in a duel defending the honor of his spouse, and 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 uh, in in a way, it's. Um, it's somehow bizarrely fitting that the, the great philanderer should actually die as the sort of uxorious um, husband. Mm -hmm. Well, to that effect, um, Odessa, as you describe, is, is also a very seedy city, a city of thugs, smugglers, and thieves. Um, how did the underworld uh, of Odessa put its stamp on, on the city's social structure and culture? 
Well, any port city, I think, invites the development of that kind of, um, of that kind of underworld. I mean, Naples, uh, which we might say is the kind of godfather, no pun intended, of uh, of, of Odessa, uh, has it. A city like Baltimore uh, has it. Um, you know, a city that sort of a port city that kind of revels in its own uh, seediness. Um, and if we're looking for kind of you know comparisons later on. Uh, if Baltimore has John Waters, you know, Odessa has Isaac Babel, the great sort of chronicler of this underworld, seedy um, kind of civilization that the that the city spawns. Um, but you know, it as a port, it's easy for for smugglers, uh, relatively easy for smugglers to come in, whether they're smuggling contraband or uh, weapons or you know political tracts of ad- advocating republicanism and liberalism within uh, the Tsarist Empire. Um, it's a place that has easy connections to the rest of, of what is now Ukraine or on to what is now Romania or even farther north uh, to Poland. It's uh, you know, a variegated, multicultural, multi-religious landscape where people are bumping up against each other, sometimes literally bumping up against each other in rather violent ways. Um, and uh, over time, the city, I think, like, like plenty of other ports, begins to, um, to revel in that, and it's, it, it, it's sort of native um, outsiderness uh, to celebrate it in music, uh, to celebrate it in folk art, uh, and, and, and in poetry, and and it's that kind of the, the richness of the dark side of the city that that comes to be part of its identity. Mm-hmm. And then another piece of this is is the fact that uh, it's also a birthplace of revolutionaries. Um, here you have Greek revolutionaries are hanging out there. You have a young Leon Trotsky. Um, the militant Zionist Vladimir Yabotinsky comes from Odessa. And then, of course, the, the great sailors mutiny on the battleship of Potemkin. How do you explain um, so many of these characters, revolutionaries coming out of this city? Well, I mean, it, it's certainly true that, you know, revolution often happens uh, on the edge of places rather than at the center of places. And then the then the uh, the people from the frontier, um, whether they're Stalin or, or Napoleon or others, you know, eventually uh, move to the center and, uh, and reshape the societies of which they've barely been a part previously. And Odessa being a city on the frontier and on the edge and a place that has a kind of um, seedy underworld uh, side to it is really the perfect breeding ground for, for this kind of person. Trotsky, uh, who was not born in the city but, but was educated in the city um, through what we would now call primary school, um, says in his memoirs that everything he needed to learn about being a revolutionary he learned in in Odessa. In particular, the idea that most of humanity is what he called a vast, vacillating mass that is sort of blowing with whichever wind uh, happens to be coming their way at any point. Therefore, you need you know a band of professional revolutionaries to organize this vast, vast, vacillating mass. Um, he said he learned that lesson sort of on the playground of his school, St. Paul's School uh, in, the, in the center of Odessa, because when he would get in trouble, uh, it was often very difficult for, for him to find anyone to support his case um, against the headmaster or against the, uh, the other teachers there. But over time, you know, I think the city did have the influence of, uh, of, of breeding revolutionaries, but also making it easy, relatively easy for them to hide out, either physically in the uh, catacombs that undercut the city, a vast network of many, many, many miles of limestone caves that undercut the city, or 
sort of uh, conceptually hiding out, uh, cha people changing their identity, um, transforming themselves, uh, and, and, and thereby escaping, uh, escaping the watch of the Tsar's authorities. Mm -hmm. and, and talk a bit about how this, the, uh, Jabotinsky's life in Odessa shaped his, his um, political views. Well, he, he is a character that I kind of went back and forth uh, about in, including uh, in, the, in this history of Odessa because, of course, so much of his career really takes place outside of the, of, of the city, even though he thought of himself and, and was an Odessan by birth. But Vladimir Jabotinsky was, a, uh, was, was one of the great, um, I guess, uh, alternative voices within the Zionist movement. He is now... Uh, often referred to as the founder of revisionist Zionism, that opposed himself to uh, Chaim Weizmann, David Ben Gurion, and other some of the other great um, figures within uh, the Zionist cause. Jabotinsky's sort of contribution to Zionism was this belief that Zionism was really just another form of nationalism; that there was nothing special or world historical about it. Um, it certainly was not meant to be linked up with a particular political program, say the socialism of a Weizmann or a Ben-Gurion. It was just any other form of nationalism, like the Italian variant or the Polish variant or uh, the Russian or Ukrainian variant. And for Jabotinsky said that he learned to become a Zionist by watching Gentiles in Odessa at the very end of the 19th century, beginning of the, of the 20th century. Um, that is, watching the way in which nationalist movements were beginning to develop and coagulate in, in this city. Uh, and he realized that uh, that... Jews uh, simply needed their own form of nationalism. They couldn't rely on religion. Uh, they certainly couldn't rely on the idea of denationalized universal socialism to deliver them. They really needed their own form of nationalism. And, and, and that in, in the struggle among nationalities, he felt, um, there was really nothing beyond the, uh, the sort of survival of the fittest to determine uh, which nationalisms win out. He saw all nationalisms as being fundamentally at odds. They're going to fight over the same piece of real estate. They're going to fight over a particular interpretation of history. And it's actually power, strength, raw military force that determines which, which one of those uh, win, wins out. And in some ways, it was uh, by watching the events of Odessa in 1905, particularly the, uh, the um, anti-Jewish pogrom in the city, uh, that, that uh, Jabotinsky became convinced of, of these particular yeah, in a way, he he kind of resembles the contradiction of this uh, multi-ethnic, uh, worldly city. Um, just to go on a bit about the ethnic violence, the, you've mentioned it a couple of times, but just to have you go into some more detail, how did violence, particularly against the city's Jewish population, shape it? This the city had a long history of uh, of anti-Jewish violence. Uh, in fact, um, like most uh, parts of the of the uh, of the Western Russian Empire many other parts of, of East and East Central Europe, um, violence against Jews was practically an annual occurrence. It always took place in the spring, always took place around Easter. There would always be some kind of rough up between uh, Christians and Jews. There would be stories, uh, horrific stories about uh, Jews murdering Christian children to use their blood uh, for making pa Passover matzah and these other blood libel claims that were um, that were very much uh, in evidence in the uh, in, in the late 19th century, early 20th century. Um, but in, in Odessa in particular, there were a number of very violent, um, large-scale 
pogroms from the 1870s forward, in, one in 1871, another in 1881, and finally the, the largest scale version of this in 1905, um, when uh, thousands of people uh, are injured, hundreds of people are killed, um, uh, scores of uh, uh, Jewish businesses uh, are destroyed in a melee of violence over the course of the summer and fall of, of 1905. And um, in a way, the violence itself is, and at the time, I should say, this was the largest pogrom ever in, uh, in Russian history. Uh, the pogroms of the period of the First World War and the Russian Civil War would eventually eclipse those. But uh, the 1905 Odessa pogrom was uh, certainly the most notorious of its, of its age. And one of the reasons, though, the level of violence was so high was that um, you know, the term, even the term pogrom, which we imagine you know, as sort of groups of Christian thugs descending on Jews, Jewish businesses, and so on, and, and, and injuring, killing, or, or destroying members of that community. Um, the, the, the picture in Odessa was slightly different, because this was, the, for, the, for the first major time in Russian history, Jews fought back en masse. Uh, the lesson of a pogrom that took place two years earlier in the city of Kishinev, not that far from Odessa, uh, which was world-famous or infamous uh, in its day, the lesson that local Jewish leaders in Odessa took from the Kishinev pogrom is that you need to arm yourselves, that there is a new wave of violence coming. And so uh, a whole series of self-defense units that Jabotinsky, for example, himself was, uh, was involved with, self-defense units uh, emerged over the course of those two years. And so what you have in 1905 in Odessa really is uh, a little mini-civil war. Uh, between Jews and right-wing nationalist uh, Christians that spills into the Docklands and uh, in, even beyond the city center. Mm -hmm. And ha where does the um, uh, other segments of the population fall into this? Say, the, the, if, is there a Muslim population in Odessa at the time? No, I mean, there are a few Tatars around, a few Turks around, but nothing, not, not a significant Muslim presence. Oh, to have any kind of play in, in, in this violence? No, really, the, the main dividing line is between uh, sort of nationalist Christian groups, the so-called Black Hundreds or the Union of Russian People, as it was uh, known at the time, uh, and and local Jewish communities and uh, Jewish uh, leaders. Uh, the the Russian state, of course, plays a role in this, and we know that at least local police officials were intimately involved in in organizing the violence. The sense being at the time that uh, that perhaps the Jews somehow had it coming, that so much of the city's commerce by this stage was in the hands of, of Jewish business people, and the view from, uh, from uh, on the part of local Russian officials, Russian state officials, uh, was that this was a kind of periodic uh, bloodletting uh, that, uh, that uh, the, 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 the local Christians sort of uh, had to have in order to express their discontent with uh, Jewish command of the local, local economy. I mean, that form of of kind of official anti-Semitism, uh, if you like, certainly spurred on the violence. But the level itself, I think, had much, much more to do with this interaction between armed Christian groups and armed Jewish groups. And then, if, then the lesson that Jabotinsky takes away from that is, you know, Jewish nationalism has to be an armed nationalism. He, he invented the term Iron Wall later on in the 1920s uh, to describe the relationship between uh, Jews and Arabs in Palestine. He felt that Jews in Palestine had to erect an iron wall um, around themselves because, of course, Arabs would not leave the territory that they had claimed as theirs without being forced to do so. 
uh, Jabotinsky had no had no illusions um, about the degree to which the, this would be violent. Yeah, and sadly, uh, his uh, premonition has come true. Yeah, that's right. I mean, there is now a, a wall, exactly not not an iron iron one. But, In some uh, places, <laughs> yes. Yeah, that, that's right. I mean, there, there is that 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 kind of physical wall um, there. And you know, some people some people leave, will even say that. I, in fact, I say this in the the book that um, Jabotinsky, even though he's not all that well known to people sort of outside, um, you know, sort of spe- except for specialists who really work on the history of Zionism, history of the state of Israel, and so on. Um, you know, Jabotinsky, in a way, wins, at least wins one version of the battle over what Zionism will be, because certainly the Likud party's version of Zionism, much less the Shas party's version certainly. of Zionism, is, is one that comes from Jabotinsky's heritage. Yeah, absolutely. Um, well, all of the anti-Jewish violence in the city certainly could act as a historical prelude to what happens when the Romanians occupy the city during World War II. Um, talk about what life was like in the what nine hundred and seven days of occupation um, right. for its residents. Well, this is a, a period in Odessa's history that I wanted to give some attention to. Uh, it's one that very few historians have 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 written about, um, and it's a period that even contemporary Odessans themselves don't really understand or don't don't know about. Those nine hundred seven days are really a kind of big black hole where. You know, history kind of stops in the fall of 1941 and starts up again in the spring of 1944, um, right, a period that's bracketed by heroism in the way that Odessans tell their own story uh, now. But uh, the city was occupied um, not by Nazi Germany, but by one of Germany's allies, Romania. Um, it was the capital of a province that the Romanians called Transnistria, um, a section of western Ukraine that Romania controlled throughout the war and transformed into a kind of dumping ground uh, for undesirables from other parts of, of Romania. Jews who were deported from other parts of Romania were sent to this region of Transistria. Uh, the entirety of the Romanian Jewish population in Odessa was deported to camps and ghettos in inland uh, Transnistria. And, uh, and, and Romania uh, remained in place uh, as the occupying power. The Romanians probably had some idea that uh, in the event of an Axis victory in the war, which they certainly hoped for because they were part of the Axis themselves, um, that Transnistria would remain Romanian uh, after the war and Odessa would remain uh, a Romanian port, perhaps become the most important commercial port in an enlarged Romanian state. Mm-hmm. And for the residents of Odessa, how did they they handle the occupation? Well, it's um, there. There are many different sides to this because, uh, on the one hand, the Romanians um, generally got good marks actually from many Odessans because they uh, the local Romanian mayor, a man named German Puntea, made sure that the opera house got up and running again, that electricity was restored, that the water system was put back in place, that newspapers were allowed to. Um, uh, to be published, and that importantly, that film th- uh, cinemas uh, were reopened. The Romanians used film very effectively for propaganda purposes during uh, during the occupation. Um, on the other hand, uh, if you happen to be uh, Jewish, the Romanian occupation was pretty pretty beastly. The Romanians begin already in the fall of 1941 with the systematic roundup of Jews uh, in the city. Um, in the middle end of October 1941, there is a massacre of Jews leading to the deaths of somewhere around 20 or 25,000 people over the course of just a, uh, just a, a matter of weeks. 
uh, Jews being shot or hanged or placed into buildings and then those buildings uh, set on fire. These things were accomplished at Romanian hands, not uh, at the hands of, say, the SS or the German Wehrmacht. Um, and then throughout the rest of the, of the, the wartime occupation, from the, the winter spring of 1942 uh, on, the, the city exists as one that is virtually denuded uh, of a population that had been a third of the city's population, its Jewish population, uh, be, before the war. And so it's, uh, I try to tell that wartime experience in ways that, um, that give perhaps a more microscopic account of city, city life during that period, including the role of local Odessans in denouncing um, their, their Jewish neighbors during the war. And, and along with that, I mean, this goes back to something you said earlier in the interview about it, the post-war being a time where you get a, a stronger Odessan identity. Now, how does, uh, in relation to that, the, the development of that, uh, that identity, how did post-war Odessa deal with the memory of occupation and, and particularly the atrocities perpetrated against this Jewish population. Well, to me, this idea of uh, you know what I call the myth of of modern Odessa um, really does, I think, take off after the war itself. There's always this sense of being Odessan even in the 19th century, but it really ramps up after 1945. Um, the wartime experience is portrayed completely by Soviet propagandists after the war as being a, a period of heroism. In fact, Odessa is one of the first four Soviet cities to receive the title Gora Giroi, or Hero City, after 1945, you know, along with Leningrad, uh, Sevastopol, uh, and Stalingrad, cities that had you know, withstood withering, uh, devastating sieges. Whereas for most of the war, uh, Odessa was in fact occupied, but but occupied in a relatively um, peaceful way, with the grotesque exception of the of the roundup of the city's Jewish population. Um, and, and after the war, this idea of Odessa being a hero city, a happy-go-lucky city, um, a kind of you know the, the centerpiece of the of the Red Riviera, um, a place of kind of um, freewheeling citizens of cosmopolitanism of you know a quintessentially soviet city where nationality doesn't really matter and you you forget you're anything but odessan or or soviet all of that i think comes into play part of that is a is a product of the of, of propaganda during the war itself you know people being very nostalgic about this city that really that was under foreign occupation that wasn't part uh, you know, formally of the of the Soviet Union during during the war, but in some ways one can't help but look at the at the history of the development of this myth in the the late Soviet period and not think that it's a kind of uh, kind of expiation for or compensation for the way in which the city learned to devour itself during itself. Yeah, it's it's interesting that you say that that they come together as this hero city as this Red Riviera, but that at the same time what one could say made that possible was the the destruction of a third of the population <laughs> um, yeah, and during yeah. the war. Yeah, or, or certainly, I mean, even if it didn't make it possible, it's certainly one of those things that the post-war post-war identity kind of comes to compensate for, I guess. Um, you know, and the city, even though after the war, the city itself remains a relatively um, violent and uneasy place, especially as you have Jews and others who had evacuated from the city 
uh, before the Romanian invasion. As they come back into the city in 1946, 47, 48, um, there is a great deal of tussling, violence, um, discontent over the attempt by the evacuees to get back living space, get back jobs, and so on. In fact, uh, many of the testimonials that I've, I've read or people I've talked to in the, in the course of this project will say that the first time they experienced a real kind of visceral anti-Semitism uh, in the city was when they came back to the city after the war. Uh, it was something that, that, in fact, during the earlier Soviet period had been, uh, if not absent, then um, out, outweighed by a sense of Soviet identity. But this anti-Semitism is, a, is, is in some ways a post-war phenomenon. I don't, I don't know if you've read um, Rebecca Manley's book on uh, the evacuation. Yeah. and She's she Tashkent Station. Right. Yeah, it's a brilliant book. And, and she points this, this anti-Semitic um, belief with the evacuation that the only people who were evacuated were Jews. So I would imagine when they come back, a lot of this is played out in Odessa, too. That's right, and we have that from from a lot of the memoir literature, where when people did come back, you know, the people who had remained in the city will say, "Well, look, you Jews kind of ran away, um, and we were the ones who spent the occupation here defending defending the city." And uh, and that even finds its way into some of the post-war propaganda and, and so on. You know, of course, throughout the Soviet Union, uh, after the war, Jews uh, as such were not classed as victims. Uh, that is to say, the victims were the peaceful Soviet people who were, you know, victimized by the by the German fascist um, ag- aggressors. And so, the idea of a particular kind of Jewish suffering. Um, is one of those things that gets glossed over in in Soviet propaganda after the war. And in fact, that's uh, something that uh, Odessans themselves still, to my mind, kind of labor under. Uh, It's really not part of the city's own narrative now that there was a particular focused Jewish kind of suffering from 1941 to 44 that didn't actually apply to, to, to other Odessans as well. Well, it's interesting at the la- toward at the end of the book you turn away from Odessa as such and to and turn more to little Odessa in Brighton Beach, New York. Um talk about your reasons why you you gave attention to this and and how it plays into the general narrative of Odessa's history. Well, I was interested in a, in two things really. One, I was interested in what happens when kind of nostalgia and myth begin to substitute for history. So in that post-45 period, I'm, I'm, I'm very interested in where the, the myth of Odessa in wartime in the 19th century begins to, how that begins to congeal in the, in the late Soviet period. But secondly, I was also interested in the way in which great cities, that is cities that really do have a kind of core identity to them, or cities that define a way of being, not just a place to be, if you like. I mean, when you say Odessa, when you say Naples, when you say New Orleans, um, you're not just describing a place. You, you, the, the, immediately a set of images come to your mind that define those, those places. Odessa is certainly one of those, and I was interested in the way in which that gets reproduced um, abroad. And, you know, if you go to Brighton Beach in Brooklyn today, which forms the, the last chapter of the book, um, you really do get a sense of what Odessa was like. Now, maybe Odessa circa 1985 is, is what Brighton Beach sort of represents today, but, it, but this great European and Eurasian city um, has managed to, to reproduce itself in perhaps the most unlikeliest and, and the most unlikely of places um, on the boardwalk in in Brooklyn. And so I, I, I kind of wanted to see what it's like when a city 
picks up its belongings, you know, stands on its uh, on its legs and moves um, a continent a continent away. Well, and then after you treat uh, Brighton Beach, you turn back to post-Soviet Odessa, which now, of course, is in the Ukraine. Um, what is Odessa today? Well, it is like it was in the Russian Empire, like it was in the in the Soviet Union, a place that's uh, that's in but not of the wider country of, of which it's a part. Um, its relationship to uh, to Ukraine, I think, is is a fraught one and a complex one. Uh, the ethnic majority in the city uh, is now Ukrainian, has been since the 1970s, um, but you wouldn't really know it uh, by by walking down the street. That is, if we have in our mind. Um, a sense of being Ukrainian, meaning, you know, speaking Ukrainian, um, having a particular relationship with a little village in Galicia, and um, and you know that, that that's our sort of notion of what Ukrainian is somehow. Um, within Odessa, it's still overwhelmingly a Russian-speaking uh, city, uh, a city that has a, a very strong relationship, if not to Russia itself, then certainly to Russian culture and civilization and and history. Um, and a place that really does see itself as as apart from the rest of the country that more or less ignores uh, what's going on in Kiev and, um, and and sees itself as being of by and, and kind of for itself still a very raucous um, and multicultural place but where you you constantly see these fights now over what it's what its truest heritage is meant to be. Um, I talk in the book about the, uh, the war of monuments that goes on in the city. Um, a, a more pro-Russian monument will be erected, for example, the, re- the unveiling and, and reestablishment of this monument to Catherine the Great a few years ago. And in response, uh, the more pro-Ukrainian factions in the city will put up their own monument to a great Ukrainian cultural um, hero. Um, the street signs are now in uh, in Ukrainian, which um, will strike many visitors, I guess, as as rather odd, since you expect to see you know Russian or Italian or whatever um, uh, street signs um, there. But this uh, this debate over identity really does play itself out in the in the streetscape of the city. Yeah, I would imagine that Odessa being kind of on the margins historically, but in, and geographically for post-Soviet Ukrainian national identity, it does pose a problem considering that a lot of Ukrainian national identity now is based on an anti-Russian as as trying to create a distance uh, from being part of Russia, the Russian Empire and its history. And here is Odessa, which is really a creation of the empire. Um, so I can I can imagine it does uh, pose problems. That's right, and I think it also it, it, it's also a place that complicates our understanding of debates within Ukraine being a kind of east-west, being sort of playing out along a kind of um, east-west uh, division or or axis. Because you know Odessa being a very western uh, lying city in in Ukraine, um, nevertheless has a very powerful, very strong um, kind of Russian identity. Um, so again, that that the, once you start looking at urban spaces in Ukraine, this sort of complicates this um, this narrative. I think. Well, it's a very uh, your book is a is a wonderful book, and and as I said at the beginning, it's a wonderful read. Uh, your writing style certainly needs to be commended in addition to the content of it. So uh, I thank you for that. Um, so just to wrap up the interview, uh, what are you working on now? Well, I've got a couple of a uh, couple of things I'm doing. Um, this whole period of the Second World War has been particularly fascinating uh, to me, and so I've been doing more writing on the, the, the Romanian occupation 
uh, of, of the city during the war. Um, I came across a number of documents in doing the research for this book, in fact, a whole treasure trove of, of documents, a dark treasure trove, I have to say. These, all these letters that average Odessans had written into the Romanian occupation authorities denouncing uh, their neighbors. And I think I want to try to do something uh, more with that because it gives us this remarkable microscopic view of what happens in a multicultural space uh, under foreign occupation. Um, but, but even beyond that, I'm, um, I've become more and more interested in, uh, in peace and stability. Uh, that is to say, um, what, do we, what do we write histories of if we're writing a history of peace? What's the, or in political science terms, what's the thing you code if you're coding peace in your data set? And so I'm beginning to think through, through uh, some of those things as well, drawing on what I know about Odessa and what I know about violence and, and civil war in general. Well, that sounds great, and, and I should say, as, as a historian, I'm glad that um, history has pulled you more towards us, away from uh, political science. <laughs> from, from the dark side <laughs> of science, yeah, right. Exactly. Um, right. Well, Charles, thank you very much. Um, I really enjoyed talking to you. Well, thank you very much, Sean. This has been uh, really delightful. Thanks for having me on. I've been speaking with Charles King about his book, Odessa, Genius and Death in the City of Dreams. I hope you enjoyed the interview. Once again, I'm Sean Guillory, your host for New Books in Russia and Eurasia Studies. If you're interested in hearing more interviews by the New Books Network, please go to newbooksnetwork.com. And be sure to tune in next time when I talk to Stephen Barnes about his book, Death and Redemption, The Gulag and the Shaping of Soviet Society. Until then, goodbye. Того-то знать не весел дом, в котором мы живем, Надо бы лампочку повесить, денег все не соберем.